Um, Please open them to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start today with verse 3. So, so far in the Genesis narrative, what we have is God created the universe, and now God is hovering, the Spirit of God is hovering over the formless void. He's hovering over this material stuff that is almost eagerly expecting something to happen. And that's where we're at in the story. We ourselves are part of that which is waiting for this thing, whatever it's going to be, to happen. The question is, okay, what is God going to do? We know that God has already done something with the creation itself, with the creation of the cosmos, of the world, the heavens and the earth. But now what's going to happen next? And so as the, the Spirit of God is hovering, this is what happens. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So again, last week we ended with the Spirit of God hovering over the formless dark abyss. Now we see what happens with what has already been created. The primordial world will not exist in its form forever. Thus, in the following text, we see how the formless void is formed, how the void is filled, and how the darkness is taken away. All of this will be done through the word of God alone. So the first word deals with the light. God says, let there be light. The result of this proclamation is, light comes into being. This is the first act of creation by the word of God. Light itself, as we know, is the opposite of darkness. This is both true in its physical realm um, as well as figuratively. For light in the scriptures is often a descriptor of what is good and righteous, whereas darkness is um, what is bad. Once it comes into being, God sees that it is good. To be good has the nuance that it is not evil. It is interesting since the darkness is never considered good in this chapter. Some people think, okay, the darkness must be that. But, um, but that might be reading too much into the text. Instead, the fact that light is good reflects the fact that God's specific creation is in relation to him. He is good and he creates what is good. God then separates the darkness from the light. The fact that God separates the darkness from the light may be a reflection of the fact that darkness is not considered evil in and of itself. Um, If it were, then God would simply scatter it. There would be no more darkness at all. Instead, darkness may be seen as lacking. In this sense, it is lacking light. At this point, God calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. The fact that God calls these things is an indication of his sovereignty over them. In ancient times, when one named something, then one had sovereignty over it. Thus, throughout this section, God names what he creates, indicating his control and sovereignty over the universe. We are then told that there is then an evening and a morning the first day. All right. Verses 6 through 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. If the first day dealt with the darkness, then the second day is going to begin to deal with the formless void. This is done by the second creative word, which separated the waters from the waters. There's a bit of debate over what the expanse means, as we saw a few weeks ago when David asked me the question, what does that mean? Um, Some translations actually have firmament, firmament rather than expanse here. The truth is, we do not have a clear indication what the text means. Um, It could mean that they believe that there was a shield around the earth, but there's no great evidence in the text to necessarily uh, say this. Instead, the text isn't very concerned with what this means. It's more concerned about the God who created it. As such, God speaks and makes the expanse, which separates the waters above and below it. Uh, the most likely understanding of this, though, is that is the seas on the earth and the rains which fall from the sky. The clouds, the atmospheres, uh, can easily be understood to be the waters above, just as the seas can be understood as the waters below. 
Now, just as it was on the first day, when the Lord speaks, the creation itself listens, and it was so. Ultimately, the expanse is called heaven. This is a reminder to us that the writer is looking at all of this from the perspective of someone on the earth. Um, when we look up at the sky, we see the heavens. The heavens doesn't just mean the celestial bodies per se, but the whole of what we see in the sky. Thus again, the water can represent again the clouds and the rain which fall on the earth and still be described as the heavens or part of the heavens or part of the expanse. The end result is that there was an evening and a morning the second day. All right, 9 through 13. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in their which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Once the waters have been separated, God then continues the creation cycle by bringing forth land. As we remember, the waters are all that existed on the world at the time. The formlessness is starting to become formed when the waters are separated, but more needs to be done. The form of the earth comes in the focus as God utters the third creative word, which is that the waters are gathered into one place and the land appears. Um, the fact that this is called one place simply means that it is not every place as it once was. It indicates a separation again. Once again, God names dry land as earth and the waters as seas. This reminds us again that God is sovereign over the earth as well as the seas. He is not, uh, he is not the seas or the earth himself, but he is over them, above them, as the creator and sustainer of them. Just as with the creation of the light, God sees that this creation is good. Before the day is done, however, God gives forth uh, the fourth creative word, which is that the earth would bring forth vegetation. Now, there is some debate whether vegetation is part of plants yielding seeds and fruit trees, so there will be three different kinds, um, or if it's simply describing the seed plants and the fruit plants, that seems more likely to me, as in later in the chapter we find vegetation is not seen, but seed plants and fruit plants are. Likewise, it is specific that what is created are those that bear seeds according to their kinds. So that's what vegetation, I think, means, is that vegetation means these kinds of plants. Seed plants, fruit plants. That's what vegetation is. Now we see that while God's creative word brought forth the concept of vegetation, it is the earth itself which brings the vegetation forth. Um, and we see this as let the earth sprout, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. The earth is doing what God has commanded it to do. Thus, God enables the world to produce in a way which is self-sustaining. He doesn't have to keep on creating vegetation. He says it once, and then the vegetation keeps on going. Um, thus, we find again morning and evening the third day. Now, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and that let them be signs for seasons and the, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. The fourth day is the second longest day after the sixth day. We find God's creative word bringing forth the stars, the sun, and the moon. The question some might ask is, what though does signs mean? Well, it could mean one of three things. 
The first is signs and seasons go together just as days and years. Um, the second is that signs simply refers to seasons, days, and years. And the third is that signs refers to literal signs such as rainbows, the stars of Bethlehem, things like that. The truth is most scholars are divided. And any one of them makes sense in context. So you decide for yourselves. Um, ultimately, the point is that God provides more order. Not only does he provide order, but he also begins to fill the voided aspect of the universe. While the previous three days focused on forming that which was formless, the following days deal with filling the void. Thus the heavens are filled with stars, with lights, with moons. Further, when we consider the creation of the stars, sun and moon, we reflect on how different they are compared to other ancient religions. Simply put, the ancient religion saw the sun and the moon, even the stars, as gods themselves. In Genesis, however, we find that these are simply part of creation. We see how this is the case when the sun and moon are not actually given their normal Hebrew names. Instead, they are simply called the greater light and the lesser light. The likeliest reason for this is to keep the Jews and others from assuming that these were in fact gods since the sun and moon in Hebrew could be taken to mean other religious gods of the time period. Here, however, they're not called that on purpose, because God wants us to realize these are not beings, they are just bodies of creation. They're not gods, they are just the sun, they're just the moon, that's it. Even the stars themselves, if you notice, is kind of like added as an afterthought. And the stars, you know, something so simple. <laughs> for God. And the stars are created. Um, as it is here, though, they're not called sun and moon. They're called the lights, the vessel holders, the light holders, so to speak. Again, God sees that this is good and thus ends the fourth day. All right, we'll go to the last day that we're going to do today, the fifth day. Starting with verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. Just as the fourth day dealt with dealing with the void, so now it continues, but with the seas and the sky. Um, for the seas, we find fish and the mammals that live in the ocean. For the sky, we find the birds. We notice that this is different than what is said with the creation of the vegetation of the land. Uh, for here, we find that God makes the living creatures, whereas the earth makes that which God said to come into existence. Likewise, we find specific reference to great sea creatures, this is again against the religious beliefs around the Jewish people during the time period. The great sea creatures were often depicted as gods themselves or as beings whom the gods needed to battle in order to create or in order to wrest control over the earth from. Here, however, we find them as nothing more than created beings. They're nothing great. They are far below God. Um, Likewise, we find specific, or no, finally, instead of God naming the animals of the seas and the air, God blesses them. To bless them is an indication that what is being blessed can occur. Here we find the blessing specific to being fruitful and multiply. This means that God is blessing them with procreation, continued existence in their kinds, to spread out over their respective areas. Whereas we will often consider blessing only in regards to wealth and fame, uh, the truth is, children and offspring are considered perhaps the greatest of blessings. It is with this that there is an evening and a morning, the fifth day. All right. The main point of these verses are to focus on God, who is the creator, and his sovereignty over all of creation. Unlike the pagan religions... The God of the Bible is far above the created order, and there is none who is like him. He orders all of the cosmos, and his cosmos does his bidding. The God we find in the scriptures is in stark contrast to the other deities of the time, and as such, he is far greater than them. 
because of who God is, we are given also a completely different origins description of the universe in comparison to other beliefs, either past or present. The scriptures speak very specific about what God has done. All right, application points. Some of you would probably be hoping for this first one to be about days. <laughs> and what does that mean? Wait till next week. Um, I decide that we're going to have to deal with some other things first. Next week we'll have a little bit more time to deal with what does days mean? What does it mean? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Um, are we, how are we supposed to interpret this? Sorry, we're going to have to wait. Um, I know some of you are really looking forward to it. <laughs> some of you were not. Um, still, the wise God. Within today's text, we were given a lot of information. Uh, the first, of course, is the creation account itself, or at least uh, how God formed the formlessness and scattered the darkness. But with that comes information about the creator as much as about the creation. Oftentimes we focus so much on the creation, we forget the vast riches found when it comes to learning about who this God is. For example, what we find is a God who distinguishes. We see this first with the first three days of the week. The first day, God creates light and distinguishes it from uh, light from darkness. The second day, he distinguishes the waters from below and from above. The third day, he distinguishes the waters from the land. And further, vegetation from vegetation even. What does this tell us about our God? Well, personally, I think it's a reminder to us that our God is wise. Oftentimes, we talk about wisdom. But what exactly does wisdom mean? What is wisdom? A lot of times we'll say it's coupled with knowledge, uh, which it is in some way, but it's also not knowledge either. One can know things without being wise. And you can ask Carissa. She tells me that all the time. I kid. I kid. Still, others will say that it is what you do with your knowledge. Well, now we're getting closer to the part of it. Um, in fact, this leads to the medium between the two. And that is that while knowledge is gaining understanding, uh, wisdom is the ability to make judgments, to discern. Thus, we see in the text that our God is one who discerns. He discerns between light and darkness, discerns between the heavens and the earth, the waters and the earth. But we also notice another aspect of his discernment. And that is when he calls elements of creation good. By calling them good, it reminds us that our God is good and it is from him that all good things come. He is the one who defines what is good and therefore what is bad. He discerns between what is good and bad. Thus, what we find from the beginning of creation again is wisdom. Now, this should not surprise us. Consider what we find in the book of Proverbs when wisdom says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depth, depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth and its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always." Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom. And that's what we see. We see wisdom is from the beginning. It is with wisdom that God created the heavens and the earth. It is the wisdom of God which brings all of the creation from chaos into order. From formlessness into form. From darkness and light. Our wise God created the entire cosmos with the purpose of wisdom behind it. He discerned what the universe needed to be for his utmost glory. And from this comes what we perceive and experience every single day. Interestingly enough, science actually argues this very point. 
The fine-tuning of the cosmos is evident in what we are able to perceive. Many do not know that scientists have found that there are certain constants within our universe that, if altered, would not allow life to exist at all. In fact, each one has to be so precise that to be changed, even minutely, would mean the universe would not be able to be a habitat for any life at all. Still don't believe me. Consider what we mentioned last week, gravity. Gravity, if the constant for gravity in the universe had been slightly altered, then the universe would not be able to permit life. The best way philosophers and scientists describe this is to imagine a dial divided up into 1 in 10 to the 60th. If the dial is set any other of those points other than where it is set, the universe would not be able to exist. It would either have collapsed in on itself or would have formed too quickly and then collapsed anyway. The best way to describe just how momentous or monumentous this number is, imagine all the cells in your body. That is one in ten to the fourteenth parts. Or all the seconds since the beginning of the universe, assuming an old universe view with billions of years, it would be one in ten to the twentieth parts. Now, I'm going to say it another way. You ready? Because <laughs> I think right now everyone's like, what are you talking about? Um, all right. Let's imagine that you had a radio where you could change the dial of the radio and receive a station. Then let's imagine that the radio had each one, uh, one in 10 to the 14th, or one in 10 to, uh, what was it, the 20th, or one in 10 to the 60th. Now let's imagine um, that each part, each one had a different radio station. The number of radio stations would look like this. Go ahead, Pat. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's see how, how big this number is. One to the, uh, what was it? The 14th? It would have that many stations. One to the 20th would have that many stations. Now, the last number was gravity, one to the 60th. What I'm showing you, one to the 14th means one plus 14 zeros behind it. One plus 20 zeros behind it. One plus 60 zeros behind it. Imagine a radio that had that many stations that you could turn to. That's a lot of stations. A lot of stations. All right, now let's imagine that there was only one station that was playing the songs that you wanted to listen to. One out of that number. Or better said, it would be as if there was only one station that played music and the rest played static. All right. And in order for you to get the one station that didn't, you had to set the dial exactly on the station. That's what we're talking about. The difference isn't songs or the radio. It's how much gravity or how little gravity there is. If that dial was set just one number to the left, one number to the right, we wouldn't have any life. It's that specific, that precise of a number. So, lots of numbers. But scientists and philosophers also notice that it's not just gravity. That's the problem. But also the expansion rate of the universe, which is driven by the cosmological constant. If this had been a dial again, and it had been a station, and it was changed by one part in 10 to the 120th, then again, life would not be able to exist. I think I have the numbers on here real quick. Let's see how many zeros this is. Go ahead, Pat. There it is. One in that number. If it's set one way or the other way, you wouldn't have any life. That's how specific it is. All right. Those are two scientific examples. Can we see any more? Yes. 
Thanks to mathematician Roger Penrose, we can. Consider that if the mass and energy of the universe, specifically these are neutrinos, photons, atoms, and dark matter, all things I don't quite get, um, were not evenly distributed as they were, there would be no life. Dr. Penrose has postulated that they must be set, you ready for this number? (laughs) They all must be set right from one part in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd. How many zeros? (laughs) This number is ridiculous. Consider what we said earlier. Again, it's simply a matter with um, that number with how many zeros are behind it. When we say 10 to the 10th and 123rd, again, that's saying the number one with 123 zeros behind it. We don't even have a term for that. We just have one and 123rd. That's all we can describe it as. It's not, it's not trillions or billions. We know what those are. That's what we are looking at earlier. Every time I tried to use a calculator to get this number that I'm saying right now, it erred every single time. Um, Still, if any of them had been changed, it would mean no life. Any. Fascinatingly, even though Dr. Penrose has made this calculation, and many seem to accept it as valid, actually everyone acknowledges that this is true, he's still an atheist. (laughs) Still. Luckily, we have many philosophers, such as Dr. William Lane Craig, who say, wait a minute, we have to ask something. All right. What could possibly cause these numbers to be dialed so precisely to allow for life to exist? How can it be all so finely tuned? Well, there are three that scientists and philosophers come to. The first is necessity. It is necessary for the universe to have all of these numbers dialed in as such. As in, the universe could not exist at all unless this were the case. Unfortunately, there is no evidence that it is necessary for the universe to have all these numbers perfectly in place. None. There is nothing in nature which would suggest that the universe must be life-permitting. And most agree that it is actually incredibly more likely that our universe would be life-forbidding rather than life-permitting. Because again, all of them have to be exactly right. The second possibility then is mere chance. Is it possible that we just got lucky with the universe? The answer is not likely. Scientists will tell us that it is chance, but in order to claim this is the case, they have to go beyond the realm of science into the realm of philosophy. Um, They do this by proposing the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory holds that there is some machine that creates universes, and ours just happens to be the one that's life-permitting. What's the problem? Well, first, there is no verifiable evidence that the multiverse even exists. There's nothing there that says that it exists. They cannot prove it by any scientific standard. Likewise, it doesn't explain reality that the machine itself that would make all the universes would have to be so finely tuned um, that there would be no universes unless it were finely tuned. There is no evidence to suggest that such a machine must exist. Thus, they would have to go to chance for eternity because it would have to be something that finely tuned the machine, that finely tuned the machine, uh, keep going forever. Doesn't seem very likely because if you even have one misstep, nothing would exist. All right, so what is the final explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe? The answer is design. Scientists reflect on this, that the universe is so ordered as to permit life that they even recognize design has an impression on the universe itself. In other words, someone or something set the boundaries of the universe to allow life to exist. That is the most plausible explanation as to why the universe exists as it does and how there is life, any form of life in the universe at all. Personally, I find that this is the case that we see in today's text. We find in the first five days and ultimately the sixth day of creation a fine-tuning of the universe. 
It may not describe all the fine-tuning which modern science has discovered, but it does describe God creating the universe with a design plan. We see this as each day God brings forth some different elements, from light, the separation of the heavens and the earth, and the earth from the waters. And this brings us back to the first point of all of this. How wise is our God to create a universe such as the one we inhabit? Our God's knowledge is vast and complete, but the fact that he knows exactly how much of each element to add in order to bring about his creation is a witness to his wisdom. He purposefully created the entire cosmos for a particular purpose of his glory. He brought about the creation of the universe and then ordered it so that it would fill his own grand design. If one were to study the history of science in Europe, and one were to consider all the great scientists who came out of, uh, with so many revolutionary ideas, you would find all the early scientists to be theists, most of them Christians. You would find them to be praising God in their studies because they recognize the great design which the universe gives testimony to, just as the scriptures say. They see the design, the telos, the ultimate purpose of each thing within the creation. We see it ourselves when we plant and we harvest. Consider it. When you plant corn, are you expecting barley in return? Would you do that? Would you think, oh, I'm going to plant corn today, barley? Be a little weird. There might be something wrong. Or if you were to have an apple orchard and you planted apple seeds, would you expect blueberries? No. Because the talos of the seed, the objective is to grow into an apple tree because it's an apple seed. The same is true with animals, with fish. You won't have a hammerhead shark mate with a hammerhead shark and get a dolphin. You're not going to get that. It's never going to happen. Why? Because the talos, the objective, the end result, will be something which is deeply buried within the DNA itself. And the DNA, the source code, is designed to bring forth a baby hammerhead shark. We see all of this not only in the extremes of the universe, but the everyday agricultural and everyday nature we experience. Which is why so many early scientists would be observing these things, and then suddenly, right in the midst of their notes, start saying, how glorious is God because he created the universe in such a way. Now, The question we want to ask is, have any of us praised God for his great wisdom in creating this known universe that we see? Have we ever stopped to consider the magnitude of this creation and stopped in awe of the creation, not because of the creation, but the one who created it? Have we thanked God for the marvelous world which he created, How the world was made to bear fruit of its own kind. Have we thanked God for the marvelous nature which exists, which truly echoes to us the glory of our God on high? The point we find in today's text is a God who is purposefully designing the universe. We find a God who is far greater than the universe itself. When he speaks, it listens. When his creative word is uttered, the universe responds. Thus, we find a God who is vastly superior to all other gods known to man. We find a God who is not controlled by nature, but who controls it. We find a God who is exactly as we would expect as we reason with the universe which we see. Again, how great and mighty is our God? How wonderful are his ways? If the first chapter of Genesis is teaching us anything, it's to remind us that our God could easily have chosen to make himself beyond even our comprehension. Yet, he reaches down, he saves us and redeems us, and teaches us about who he is in his personhood, in his might, in his glory. When we consider everything that we just considered, what else can we say of the beginning of the chapter thus far? All that's left for us to do is join the heavens as they declare the glory of God. He is truly worthy.
to be glorified when we really consider it. All the little things. Now, of course, that leads us to the gospel. And um, again, even with this, even with the beginning of the gospel, we see the truth of the gospel. The origins of creation, for example. We see how God is the one who created the origins. He is the one who created it all from the beginning. That it wasn't just chance. It wasn't just uh, necessity. It was the fact that it's designed for a particular purpose. And God is the grand designer. He is the one who brought about the origins so that you and I could exist as we exist. And that's spectacular. And it's not only that we could exist as we exist, but the whole universe itself. He did all of this. And we're seeing the beginnings of it. We're seeing where it leads to. Already, we already have in the first chapter of Genesis, not only the fact that God exists, but we also have the fact that good exists. It's not just something that you say subjectively that, oh, okay, I think this is good. You may disagree with me. God defines it as good. We're having so many things in just the first chapter. The origins of not only science, not only of who we are, where we came from, but even morality is here. Even distinguishing between things is here. Just as what God has done. Now, our own origin story is coming up next chapter. Well, actually, it's coming up next week. Um, where humanity is created. And next week, it's going to be very interesting to see what God is going to do with us. <laughs> um, how, how are we going to be any different than all of this wonderfulness? Well, we are going to be different, each one of us. Um, and we're going to be created with the image of God as we'll talk about what that means. And we're going to see what it means for God to um, create beings who are like him. Not completely like him, but kind of. <laughs> You can see elements of it in us. The problem, though, is, is that we get from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to Genesis chapter 3. And that's where the fall takes place. And that which was very good in chapter 1 and that which was very good in chapter 2 becomes very bad in chapter 3. And it happens because of our human freedom. That with our freedom, God recognize, well, actually, we chose to go against God. And in choosing that, God has to send his judgment on us, his punishment. And that will be death itself. The problem then is, how do we get from chapter 3 to where we are today? And we're going to see that as we continue forward, how God has a design. Just as he has a design with the creation of the universe, he has a design to redeem us. And it's going to be through... All the people we're going to read about, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through to Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus that ultimately the redemption comes from. And ultimately from this redemption in Jesus, we are able to get back to where it was originally when it was very good. We're able to get back to the fact that God looks upon each one of us and says, Good. You are good. We're getting there. In fact, technically, if we're in Christ, we're already there. <laughs> How wonderful is that term we're reminded of? I think a lot of times the devil wants to keep us here at the fall. He wants to keep us right there so that we can never have joy. We can never have happiness. He wants to keep us at the fall so that ultimately, when we think about what God has done through his son Jesus... We just think that we're all bad anyway, so who cares? But God transforms us through the redemption to say, you know what, devil? That's not the case. The fall is being reversed. And if I'm in Christ, I know that that's the case. And ultimately, that is where it leads to glorification, where we come to a new heaven and a new earth, which are filled with the glory of God, which we get to partake of, where chapter 1 and chapter 21 of Revelation it all comes together in glory. And we get to partake. And we get to join in in the glory of God, celebrating what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, in redemption. But it all starts with our origins, and that's where we are now. <laughs> and it's a long, long story, but it's a good story in the end. It's a story that may have darkness, just as it began with, which our own stories begin with. 
But if God can create darkness back then, he can create darkness in our own, or he can create light now um, from the darkness. So there's always hope for us. There's hope for everybody. Let's keep on learning what God has to say. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your creation. We thank you so much of what we are learning from all of this text, which is teaching us more and more about the God who is there, about what he has done with creation. And so, Lord, as we continue on verse by verse and as we continue on to see all the marvelous things that you've done, uh, let us continue to learn more and more about who you are, that it's not just about the creation, but it's about the creator who is there, about the one who brought it all into existence and formed it and purposefully is doing so for a particular purpose. We thank you, Lord, that you have created such a marvelous work, and we ask that you would continue to open our eyes to it more every day. Amen. Let us rise as we sing Blessed Assurance. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we partake of communion, um, it's at this time that we like to take up for our diaconate fund. Um, if you are being led by God to give toward the diaconate fund, I will tell you now that it goes toward good purposes. It goes um, toward those who are in need. And our deacon and deaconesses are very wise with how they spend their money. Um, it's not just haphazardly thrown out um, like candy. It's given for a particular purpose, for particular people in our community and especially within our church community. So if you are feeling led by God to give um, at this time, we ask that you would. And before we do, let us pray over it real quick. Father, we thank you so much for your deacon and deaconesses of this congregation, and we ask that you would continue to give them wisdom for whatever funds come their way. Uh, may they continue to seek your glory and continue to seek out your will with this money. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Today we get to celebrate communion together, and um, communion is so important to us as Christians. It reminds us of what Christ has accomplished. It reminds us personally, each one, um, that God has called each and every one of us here to be together as we rejoice in this communion fellowship. Um, And you know, I know that I personally need to be reminded of it. I personally need to be reminded of what Christ has done every day. And when we partake of this together, it reminds us that this is a feast to be enjoyed together. That each one of us, as we partake, is in the right mind to go to the Lord and to celebrate the fact that we have been redeemed. Um, So let us continue on and let us pray over the bread. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, for the fact that his broken body heals our wounds, that because of through his sacrifice, we can call you our father, and through him, we can know you personally. And so, Lord, as we partake this, may you bless each and every one of us, and may you bless us with the further knowing of Christ himself, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now we will pray over the cup. Father, As we continue to celebrate what you have done through your son, Jesus, we now turn toward the cup, which is a reminder of us of the blood of Christ, which is shed for us. And his blood brings forth a new covenant in which no more sacrifice is needed, a new covenant in which we are declared worthy through what your son has done. And so, Lord, as we partake and as we remember the new covenant through his blood, let us rejoice together knowing that it is through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have this fellowship, not only with each other, but also with you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn together.